Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 169 of the show, and it is September the 26th, 2023 as I record this. I usually do a whole bunch of this is what I'm working on and cool stuff from sword people and so on at the beginning of the show. But honestly, I have all these projects that are sort of in these in-between phases and none of it is actually terribly interesting to the outsider. And we have quite a long interview coming up, so I'm just going to cut to the chase. I'm here today with Dr. Rachel Whitbread, who is a historian and author. Her PhD from York University was on tournaments, jousts, and duels. She's the co-author with Graham Callister of Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Helmand, and is currently working on a book called Duel, Single Combat in Medieval England for Pen and Sword Press, which sounds just up our street. So <laughs> without further ado, Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's very nice to meet you at last. Yes, so yes, whereabouts, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, so I'm up in North Yorkshire at the moment. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's home for me. So I've had a really nice kind of quiet week at home, getting ready for the holidays. Uh, yeah, it's been nice and chill. Lovely. So I'm actually going to be in York in about a couple of weeks' time because oh. my daughter and I are going on a road trip taking in my mum and a couple of university towns that she may be thinking about applying to. Yeah. So yeah, is York nice. York is nice, right? Oh, York is beautiful. Yeah, I okay. I am uh I am frequently astounded that I get to call it my home rather than just uh, <laughs> just popping in for a day or something. Yeah, it's it's a lovely city. It's a great student city. Uh we've got a couple of great universities, uh loads of of student life, but it's also a a kind of safe city. I, I like to think, you know, I I grew up quite nearby. I was a student here myself. I I had no qualms walking around by myself in the evenings. It's very friendly. The people are lovely. So yeah, it's it's a fab place. Everyone should come to York. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, this this is completely different to um, what? Oh my God, I'm blanking on her name because I'm an idiot. Um, living history, absolute goddess of living history. Ruth Goodman. Ruth Goodman. That's there we it. go. <laughs> wow. Okay. In 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 my defence, I got back from a two week trip to America yeah. on Wednesday morning, so oh. my brain hasn't fully engaged yet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So Ruth, absolutely lovely guest. Mm-hmm. Um, when I asked her whereabouts she was, she was like, "I'm in Wales," and I was like, "Do you want to be more specific?" And she's like, "No, because it's absolutely lovely, and if I tell you how lovely it is and where exactly I am, everyone will come here and they'll ruin it." <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sponsored by the Yorkshire Tourist Board, but I am, I'm very pro York and pro Yorkshire. <laughs> it's, it's a great place. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, so the. Uh, the reason I came across you uh, mm. when I was sort of looking around for podcast guests was your PhD is like as perfectly on topic for <laughs> the medievalists who listen to this show as it is possible to be. Yeah, so the sure. title is Tournaments, Joust and Duels, Formal Combat in England and France. 
circa 1380 to 1440, which is also slap bang in my medievalist period um, with medieval combat from Fiora, yeah. for example. Right. Yeah. So my question is, what can you tell us about tournaments, jousts and duels in England and France yeah. from 1380 to 1440? <laughs> okay. How long have you got? <laughs> I, um, have the, I have me. all day. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, this topic uh, began uh, really as... as a kind of interest topic. Um, I did some undergrad work on Edward III. I did some master's work on the continuation of chivalric policy uh, up until about 1410. Um, and I kept coming across these events. And my first challenge when I sat down to think about the PhD. Uh, and in fact, the first conversation I had with my supervisor, Prof. Craig Taylor at, at the University of York, was what were tournaments and what were jousts and what were duels? Because that itself is an enormous question yeah. that we we haven't really got to grips with, I, I don't think. I don't think medieval writers had got to grips with that terminology and that distinction and, and that format of event. Well, well they overlap a lot, right? Overlaps hugely. Um, yeah. And they, they changed. You know, a tournament in 1250 looks vastly different to an event called a tournament in 1450. So okay. my first challenge How, was, what yeah, are these can, events? <laughs> right. So so can you just tell us what's the difference between the 1250 tournament and the 1450 tournament? That's a great place sure. to start. Sure. So um, tournaments really start as roving battles where the participants may or may not be trying to kill each other. They take place over a large area of land. We're talking, you know, acres, potentially square miles of land. There are two teams. Those teams are not exactly the same size all the time. And the participants of those two teams are galloping around on horseback over this extended area of land, trying to thwack one another. And in some tournaments, they're trying to thwack one another to unhorse one another or to inflict minor injury or sometimes they don't really have any rules at all and thwacking may lead to death. So right. those are the tournaments that, that are in England. They're in multiple other European countries as well until um, the start of the 14th century. Really, the, the vast scale of those events is, is over by the start of the 14th century in England. And they're starting to shrink and they're starting to be regulated because, you know, surprise, surprise, that people of England don't particularly like the fact that their fields, crops, buildings are being trampled by these guys trying to bash one another on horseback. So um, they are increasingly regulated. And by the end of the 14th century into the 15th century, they have become incredibly formalized. Generally speaking, rather than two indeterminately numbered teams trying to bash one another, they've boiled down to one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, they don't have to be fought on horseback anymore. They often, in fact, feature a combination of horseback and foot combat. They have developing rules uh, and officials and oversight, and they have become really very closely controlled in England by the English royalty. 
um, the monarch is very keen to control these events because they are so dangerous when unregulated. Um, there so, are. Mm, go on. So, um, is it sort of analogous to how football used to be? This village and that village used to like play a kind of football which is not really football at all and then during the 19th century it got regulated and formalized and by the beginning of the 20th century you have basically the modern football game where the pitch is determined everything all the rules are determined the number of players and all that sort of stuff is that a reasonable analogy yeah i think that analogy works really well i mean it's and and really they're regularizing it for some of the same reasons you know it it's generally bad to have people in your country dying because they are uh, playing around with one another with no rules and no regulation and they keep using these events to secretly kill one another which happens reasonably regularly right. um, so if they have a grudge or something and exactly. you can it was an accident. I didn't mean to stick my lance through his face. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, they're fighting with swords and axes. Mm. Uh, and sometimes the foot combats feature daggers and, and wrestling as well later on. So One would hope. You know, there, yeah. are, there are loads of opportunities to kill someone you don't particularly like and pass it off as just something that happens. Um so those are the basic differences. We're thinking generally smaller in scale and more regulated as the centuries go on. And that is a an English theme. The same thing is not happening in the same way on the continent, particularly in the low countries. They continue these massed tournaments or melee tournaments much later. In England, okay. that more or less dies out and it becomes an individualised sport a lot more by the 15th century. Okay. And this is distinct from jousts. How? So jousts have, have long been a component of tournaments. Jousts are uh, two men. There can be teams of men, but they will joust individually. Two men uh, running at one another with lances. Uh, and this had long been a component of tournaments. It had long been a component of many battles. Um, but as the 14th century progresses, particularly under Edward III, he, he really loves jousts. Um, these jousts start happening as individual events. Uh, two guys will run at each other with lances for a set number of attempts to hit one another with their lances, unhorse one another, sometimes commit injury, sometimes it's almost purely for, for show and for spectacle. Right, they so, have different kind of tips on their lances, right? You have yeah, like the, the, right. the, the tip that's supposed to go through the armour and the tip that's supposed to not go through the armour. Yeah, that's right. So if the two guys are trying to hurt one another, that's a combat at outrance, uh, and mm -hmm. they often have a, a kind of sharp, pointy spike on the end of their lance. Uh, not always. Um, they can joust at outrance with more blunted weapons, uh, but an at outrance combat, the, the intention is to to hurt your rival. Right. Um, jousts or combats à plaisance are the ones where you're, you're not trying to hurt them. You're maybe trying to hit them on a specific part of their body to score some points, or you're trying to, to make a really glorious spectacle. So yeah, there, right. there are two quite distinct types. Yeah, and, and Fiori, you must be familiar with Fiori Delivery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> not every historian <laughs> I have on the show is familiar with Fiori. Sure, but, um, sure. Because um, he, he makes the same distinction in his introduction, in Italian, of course, not, not using the French terms, but the, yeah. the Italian is um, alla oltranza. 
same word. Yeah. Um, I am. I literally just retranslated it a few weeks ago, but I have forgotten the word he uses. I'll stick it in the show notes for the um, our pleasure. So the for enjoy for leisure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so duels. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big subject. Yeah. So dueling, um, and you know, this this question has has chased me for twenty years, and and will continue to chase me for for many more, I'm sure. Um, dueling as a concept, you know, when you hear the word duel, uh, I think most people quite rightly think of uh, an early modern or modern uh, pistols at dawn, maybe. Swords at Small dawn. swords at dawn. Definitely <laughs> yeah. swords. Always swords. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's kind of, you know, that they see that sort of uh, early modern conception. Duels uh, have obviously been around a lot longer. Um, there are different types. Probably the, the most well-known of the medieval duels is the judicial duel, which takes place within a trial by combat. So for uh, certain crimes or certain civil cases, particularly property ownership, a judicial duel could be threatened, organised, fought over uh, an issue of law between the, uh, the two complainants, the two parties. And that kind of trial by combat, judicial duel, continues. Um, its use over property eventually declines. It becomes something used over matters that at the time they called the matters of honour. It could be anything from who owns a particular coat of arms to who committed an act of cowardice or treachery. Um, so those kind of judicially overseen, legally weighted duels are probably the, the most famous conception of a duel in, in the medieval world, but medieval England in particular. But they used the word duel for loads of other events as well. So one particular type of duel that I am fascinated by are the duels that are fought between champions or representatives of armies when they rock up on a battlefield. Okay. Uh, so you've got these two big armies standing there um, looking at one another. They can see one another. And at some point in the preceding formality before a battle, a challenge is thrown across the space between the two armies. Someone answers it. And those two People have a duel in between the two armies before the main battle gets underway. Um, one of the, okay. the best examples of this is Halidon Hill, um, 1333, where uh, a representative of the Scottish army challenges a representative of the English army to a duel. And the two of them fight between the two onlooking armies. And these events to me are, are just fascinating for kind of two reasons. Number one, you know, what does it tell us about medieval warfare and medieval battle that these two armies numbering in the thousands can stop and can wait while two guys have a bash at one another between them? Uh, and the second thing is, you know, how are these duels then being used by writers of battle to reflect the wider themes of the battle being fought around them? Um, so, yeah, the, the duels themselves are a huge topic. Uh, and this is why the, the PhD focused on a tiny, tiny little period, uh, because I, I, there's just so much to write and so much to, to read. 
So the duel um, that takes place before the battle between armies, um, that dates back to classical antiquity. Absolutely, yeah. Right. I mean, Achilles famously fought one. um, And they put it in the movie. And actually, that was a fantastically good fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It was was so quick. It was beautifully done. Um, So the outcome of the duel did not in any way determine the outcome of the battle. But you can no. imagine if your if your champion has just killed their champion, your army gets a massive morale boost. Yeah. But it's not like it's not like they they duelled instead of having the battle. No. Am I correct? Yeah. No. The sometimes duels or fights of a limited number of men were offered instead of battle. Uh, English okay. kings in the Hundred Years' War have a, a sort of real real preference to offer single combat to the French king or the French Dauphin before they take an army over the channel to France. Uh, it's sense. kind of their way of flagging to the French, I think, that they are, that they've got a score to settle. And it's a way to make themselves look uh, look really good to their men. You know, I will save right. your lives by going and fighting one-on-one. Uh, they, they had no real intention of following through with these challenges. You know, they knew the French would, would say no let's let's not um, oh, okay so it's a safe it's a safe way of gaining a yeah. bit of face yeah okay. absolutely and and you know venting your opposition and making it look like you've got a legal quarrel because you're using something that that was seen as a legal outlet for for that intention um so, le- so legitimizes your invasion yeah absolutely it, it legitimizes okay. your cause and it's another way that you can say you know we are in the right the law and god are on our side um, okay. Before battles, there's there's not that same uh, role for the leaders. I mean, Robert Bruce uh, fights one on one before battle, but normally the participants in these pre-battle duels are knights, relatively low-ranking household knights. Is is the kind of formula that the English use? But a great way to become a famous knight. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, so Halliden Hill, the, the English knight who participates in that duel, uh, is Robert Benhale. He's a household knight uh, of King Edward. Uh, and, you know, all the chronicler, chroniclers that write about this battle have a little line about Ben Hale. Right. And the only reason you know his name is because yeah. he did that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. and, and the only reason that the chroniclers, you know, they write one knight's name next to their account of the Battle of Halidon Hill. And it's that guy. Uh, and if they don't name him by name, they still make a reference to it. So people, you know, hearing that chronicle or reading that chronicle will be thinking, I, you know, I've heard that somewhere else. Someone at court mentioned that a year ago, that this guy did this great thing. Um, but they were also used as these kind of microcosms of the bigger battle, which I think cast some doubt over the accuracy of the narratives of these duels. So this duel before Halidon Hill, um, you know, the Scotsman who participates that we know far less about uh, than the Englishman is described as this great giant, this massive guy. Uh, he's called Turnbull, I, I think because he's literally described as being able to flip a bull, right? This is a big <laughs> man. Um, and uh, the English guy is described as being much smaller. Um, but of course, then when the English guy wins by uh, firstly chopping this Scotsman's dog in half, uh, the dog oh was in God. battle, uh, yeah, big, black, probably kind of a mastiff type dog. Um, dogs were 
taken into battle occasionally that that itself entirely possibly happened. Uh, but the dog gets to the English knight first and, and Ben Hale swings his sword and chops the dog in half. And then the Scotsman gets to him and meets with a similar fate. And of course, then this is painted as a great battle of David versus Goliath. You know, the right. little guy beats the giant Scotsman in the same way eventually that the smaller English army beats the giant Scottish army. So... These events were used as as microcosms of a battle or microcosms of a struggle between two sides, I think, a bit at the time. Excellent. Okay, now I do have a specific um, sort of jousty, duelly thing in mind. Mm. Uh, you must be familiar with Lady Agnes Hottot. Yes. Yes, okay. Um, so if I remember the story correctly, and I should because I, I based a character deck in my card game on her. Yeah. Um she she was her father and her and the neighbor were arguing over a plot of land um they agreed to joust on the land and whoever won the joust kept the land which seems a perfectly reasonable way of settling land disputes to me mm -hmm. and then um on the day of the joust her father was laid up with gout and so she armored up went out defeated the neighbor and then took off her helmet and revealed that he had been beaten by the daughter sure right which okay which if that is true, proves beyond reasonable doubt that she trained a lot. Because yeah. I've had a go at jousting and or sort of jousting oh, yeah. skills development stuff. You have to be a superb rider, which I'm not, and you have to have amazing weapons control, which I'm I'm better at that than I am at the riding. Yeah. Um, but even then, that's a far cry from actually being able to knock somebody off their horse. So, sure. what are your thoughts on that particular encounter? Oh, yeah. I mean the. The role of women in these duels is a a really hotly debated topic, but there's so much research still to be done um, because th there are loads of these duels. There are thousands of these judicial duels happening in England, um, not necessarily jousts, but, you know, foot combats and, and duels with cudgels and so forth. Um, and on the one hand, it's incredibly unlikely that a woman in medieval England would have access to the level of training required to joust. I mean, as, as you say, it's an incredibly high skill sport. It's also an incredibly uh, physical sport that depends a huge amount on, on physical personal strength. And of course, many Although, women hang on, can hang on, match hang on. that. I, I have interviewed um, jousters on this show and yeah. I mean... Women can certainly train to that. Oh, level. yeah. There's no, yeah. no question about it. Yeah. No, absolutely. As I say, you know, some women absolutely can uh, can attain that level of fitness and that level of strength. Whether they would be allowed to train to the point where they could access those levels of fitness and strength in jousting, which was generally a sport of the gentry and the nobility, is unlikely. Um, not impossible, but unlikely. Because the women who moved in gentry and noble circles were not expected to perform that role. They had other expected roles that they were expected to perform. Um, whether women participated in judicial duels uh, that did not involve jousts, but that involved cudgels, for example, and small shields, bucklers, um, that were the regular weapons of a judicial duel, that is 
more likely. In fact, there are instruction manuals with pictures of how a man and a woman can fight a duel against one another. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's Telhofer has the man stood in a hole to somehow make the the difference between presumably the man and woman's height. But also they have different they have them. different weapons. Right? The man's in the hole and he has a club and the woman yeah. is out of the hole and she has a rock in a veil. Yeah. And yeah. and if if he comes out of the hole he loses. If she goes into the hole she loses. Yeah. And if one of them beats the other one to death, they lose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that that indications are that, you know, they're writing rules for that to happen. Um and that is absolutely feasible for a, a judicial duel. Whether women had the the ability, not physical ability, but the ability in time and training to dedicate to learning to joust um, is doubtful. Okay, um, so I'm, what I'm getting from you is you have a suspicion that Lady Agnes Hottop did not actually duel the neighbour. Yeah, I think that's I think that's my suspicion. Um, ah, I'm not pleased with this. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I do not want to hear this. Oh, There's God. chronicles. There's. I mean, you must have read the original sources, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, what is going on? If it didn't happen, what did happen? Well, there's a number of ways that chronicles can get their information, right? And this is one of the one of the problems of using chronicles, which, of course, we, we all have to because they are one of the main sources of information on what happened in the medieval period. But chronicles themselves have a lot of problems with where they are accessing their information. Uh, many chronicles okay. were not written at the time of the event they described. Many rely on effectively gossip. Uh, some do rely on much more trustworthy sources. They rely on official newsletters. They rely on eyewitnesses. But they're also narrating gossip that they hear from travellers, from people in the street, from people who happen to visit a monastery or wherever the, the chronicle itself is being written. So the places that chronicles access their information is problematic when we're trying to work out what they're narrating that's accurate and what they're narrating that reflects a different version of reality. So when they give us an account of uh, a woman jousting or of a guy slicing a dog in half with a single stroke. Uh, that's or, not hard uh, to do. Yeah. That actually, that's perfectly doable. Yeah, I've not done it. But yeah. <laughs> so yeah, RSPCA, no, I'm, I'm you don't have to come yeah. knocking down my door. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, have, I have cut similar targets with a yeah. similar type of sword, uh, similar resistance targets and yeah. it's it's you need to be quite good with a sword to do it but sure. it's not it's not a particularly remarkable feat in terms yeah. of just getting the sword through the body yeah I, I mean as one would would expect from a knight right in in active right. service he, he would have the ability to do that but whether it happened in that way whether the english guy really was half the size of the scotsman um, probably not <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that we have to ask ourselves, is this trying to tell us truth or is this trying to tell us um, a version of truth that medieval writers and chroniclers want us to understand? OK. Um, so for the case of a woman jousting, you know, this may have happened. It may have been such a phenomenal one off that chroniclers all wrote about it because it happened exactly as they say. Or it may or the, have hang on, hang on. It can't happen exactly as they say, because in the chronicle I read, she yeah. 
pulls off her breastplate to reveal her boobs. And yeah. simply anyone who has worn armor, yeah. regardless of the boob factor, anyone who has worn armor knows you can't just pull off your breastplate. It yeah. takes time and effort to get that damn thing off. And even yeah. then, you're wearing clothes underneath it. So. Yeah, you're not wanting that that metal right, right. up against you, are you? Absolutely <laughs> no. not. Uh, no, I, no, I can't imagine anything anything worse. But yeah, no, the... the are they telling us something that, that genuinely happened or are they not? And if they're not telling us something that genuinely happened, why are they telling it that way? Are right. they telling it to us because they want to give us um, uh, a good story? You know, chroniclers sometimes just like a really good story and a woman fighting in a joust and then dramatically revealing herself with the kind of, you know, I am no man, kind of Eowyn yeah. moment. Um, that's a great story. We love Lord of the Rings and, and they would have loved that story too. Or is it because perhaps they've just confused their information? Maybe they heard about someone uh, participating in a joust on behalf of a woman and just missed out the on behalf of fact okay um did they confuse her role because women certainly had roles at jousts and tournaments and formal combats are they just confusing her role did she so what role would they have had yeah um yeah so i i think there's a there's a whole series of stuff to unpack when we're dealing with chronicle narratives and chronicle accounts uh, and it's okay. rarely just as cut and thrust as, as they tell us it is, I think. Okay. So what roles would women have had at tournaments or jousts? Yeah. So um, obviously they can, in judicial duels, be one of the complainants. Uh, they can be one of the, the parties involved in the legal uh, legal debate, legal issue. Uh, and they would have normally a champion fight on their behalf. Um, later on in more sort of ceremonial court-based events, they could act as gift givers. They would award the prizes to the victors at the end of the event. They could act as judges. They would be asked to name the knight who has performed best in the event, who's jousted the best, who's performed in foot combat the best. Um, and they often played a role in the ceremonial surrounding, particularly later formal mm. combats. So the procession of participants to the jousting area or the lists, they would and bestowing of favours, that kind of thing. The bestowing of favours, yeah. They, right. they would often sort of play a role in that ceremonial. And then, of course, these events weren't standalone. There would be feasting, often hosted by women afterwards. There would be dancing uh, in which the women often competed. So you get the echo of the men competing in the joust or the fighting and then the women competing in the dancing. So they had a, a kind of role in the ceremony and the uh, the events surrounding these events. Okay. I, I am going to choose to believe that Lady Agnes did actually do, do that. Yeah, I mean, joust. I want because, to as well. Right? Because, because there isn't... That, and, and, and there isn't any, like definitive evidence that she didn't sure yeah. it's just it's just rather unlikely which maybe is so unlikely that's how the story was kept yeah exactly it's like, it's rare. You know, okay. yeah is is this just an amazing one-off and therefore it gets written by everyone or is this a bit of mistaken confused 
uh, artistic license and it gets yeah. recorded by everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. In the absence of definitive evidence either way, I'm going to have to go with the, the one that serves my political goals the best. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fine. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's a really good story. And, and that's what I love about so many of these events and so much of this period is it's just a damn good story. Right. right. And, and that's just a great, joyous way of exploring history, I think. Okay, speaking of damn good stories, <laughs> what is the order of the round table, really? Oh, gosh. Okay, so um, <laughs> we we travel back to January 1344 for okay. this one. Um, Edward III has just held three days of jousting uh, at uh, Windsor. And he has participated himself. He gets named the winner uh, on of one of does. the days of some of the jousts. I mean, obviously he does because he's the king. Um, and he uh, announces after these three days of general merriment that he is going to found an order of the round table. Uh, and he announces it, again, according to chroniclers who we uh, who we obviously believe word for word, uh, he announces it <laughs> specifically um, to be in the same manner and condition as King Arthur. He wants to create, recreate Arthur's round table. Um, and he, uh, he does this to try and recruit 300 knights to this order of the round table. This is not a small thing. He, he goes big. Um, he says that he's going to build a home for them at Windsor. And he, uh, he stands up and he, he wears a crown for this announcement. He wears uh, fantastic robes. The, the main chronicle narrative is, is Adam Murraymouth who talks about this. And he is writing just afterwards possibly from some eyewitness testimony. And he describes the way Edward stands up in this fantastic regalia with, with a crown that he's actually just got back from it being pawned, right? So <laughs> this is not a king dripping in wealth, but he wants to appear wealthy. He wants to appear yeah. spectacular. And he says, we're going to found this amazing order of the round table, just like, you know, my ancestor, King Arthur did. Um, and he he declares that their first meeting will be in May. So five months later, uh, he says that he'll build them a home at, at Windsor. And that's it. And for a long time, it was kind of presumed or suspected that that literally was it. You know, a couple of years later, he's going off for Cressy. A couple of years after that, he creates the Order of the Garter. Very different kettle of fish when it right. comes to a, a chivalric order. Um, and we really didn't know what happened to the Order of the Round Table. Um, and then there was uh, some archaeological work at Windsor where they found the possible foundations of a very large round structure. Wow. Uh, it was huge. Uh, it would have probably sat 300 guys and their ladies, because they were included in this thing as well. So 600 people, um, they found That's some a dinner conditions. party. Yeah, for this building, that is a hell of a dinner party, right? That's, that is a big order on the menu for, for that day. Um, so they, they don't think this building was finished. They think it, it was abandoned probably when the Order of the Round Table was abandoned because Edward 
changed what he wanted the Order of the Round Table to give. You know, he created ah. this thing. He, he sets up this thing to reflect his own glory with the, the kind of whole nobility of England around him, you know, rocking up for these presumably annual festivities in May every year, um, meeting in this giant building, Edward at the centre of that. But the Arthurian kind of conception of knighthood is also a really individualised conception of knighthood. You know, while Edward puts himself at the centre, he's also encouraging his men to, to read tales of individual knights going to get individual glory you know the quest right. for the holy grail the yeah they, they do tend to go off and do stuff on their own yeah, like exactly. galahad and Percival yeah and, and, and in 1344 edward kind of maybe likes that idea he certainly likes the idea of the whole nobility unifying around him because mm -hmm. he's you know already kicks things off with France. He's perhaps considering at this point military action. He's thinking to himself, how can I get the nobles of England on board with a, a kind of military quest? And he thinks, oh, who else do I know who got his knights on board with some military quests? Arthur gives me a really great model to use here. Um, and Edward was also kind of really interested in Arthur. He, he, um, he liked his history. He owned some books, which in this period was you know, pretty unusual. A big deal. Yeah, absolutely. He has a couple of copies of the Brut. Um, he was familiar with Arthurian romance. He had a real interest in the nine worthies, these kind of nine figures of chivalry, uh, of which Arthur was one. Um, and I think he kind of has a real interest personally, as well as as a political tool of, of what the Order of the Round Table can do. Fast forward four years to the Order of the Garter and things have changed. Uh, he, he has now obviously won at Cressy. He has made a, a chivalric military name for himself. And he doesn't necessarily need the whole nobility to meet every year to celebrate him uh, and Arthurian kingship and, and military spectacle or glory um, because he's now kind of created his own myth. He, he is right. the victor against the French. So instead, he creates the garter, which is much, much smaller. The king, the crown prince, 24 guys. Um, it's a much smaller, close-knit group of people who've supported Edward in the creation of that military myth. Um, right. And it's very select. And it's all about who Edward personally favoured and rewarded. Um and so his needs change. And so his model for an order of chivalry changes. And I think that, sadly, uh, for, for us, is where the order of the round table went, because just okay. one meeting of this thing would have been incredible. But, um, but it would have cost a fortune. Yeah, it would. Whereas, <laughs> well, I mean, it is literally like 20 times more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you're you're going to have the spectacle and events around just that meeting. So be, because they probably didn't meet um, the Order of the Round Table, we don't know what Edward envisaged happening at this meeting. But, right. you know, we can maybe extrapolate from meetings of the Garter and then scale that up to 300 
nights, we're probably looking at jousting because it's announced at a three-day jousting event. We're talking feasting. We're talking processions and pageantry. You know, the cost of this thing would have been absolutely enormous. And Well, like, you know, like our recent coronation. I mean, yeah, yes. it, it, it was outrageously expensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think okay. maybe that, you know, that that may well have played a role in the scaling back of these plans as well. Okay. You know, this is a guy who's just got back from campaign. He doesn't need this anymore. He doesn't need to spend the money on this anymore. Uh, right. And he's got bigger things to spend money on. So he, uh, he yeah, marginalizes it. Okay. You mentioned the nine worthies. Could you yeah. just, the, for listeners who don't know what they are, could you just tell us? Yeah, sure. So the nine worthies are these nine paragons of chivalric virtue. Mm -hmm. Um, There were three classical, three uh, Christian and three non-Christian figures. Arthur is one of the Christian figures. They were seen as being the, the absolute height of chivalric values and virtues um and so from that we can kind of extrapolate a little bit perhaps on what the the virtues of chivalry were um you know great leadership importance in battle uh fighting ability um some obviously non-christian which is interesting when we're thinking that is fascinating yeah conceptualized yeah christianity and chivalry um but there was a, a kind of emphasis certainly for arthur on his christian values um and they were they were kind of embraced as these paragons of chivalry um a, a huge amount at the time uh do you Edward's, happen to recall sorry do you happen to recall who they were uh yeah i can uh, i can just pull up my little list here uh, <laughs> so i didn't mean to put you on the was, spot it's just this goes into interesting places so yeah no absolutely so um the uh the classical uh were hector alexander the great uh, and julius caesar um, interesting the uh, the non-Christian uh, who... So, uh, sorry, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have associated Alexander or Julius no. with being knightly at all. Yeah. They were no. emperors. Yeah, yeah. No, these are their, their kind of, yeah, the, the, okay. they see different values in each of them, I think. Sure. Um, then you've got Joshua, David and Judah Maccabee. Uh, okay. They are obviously three from uh, the Jewish tradition. And then the Christians are Arthur. Uh, Charlemagne and Godfrey of Bouillon, and uh, they uh, they were certainly kind of held up in a huge amount of esteem under Edward III. He has uh, a huge interest in them. Uh, his wife buys him, uh, I think it was a, a vase or a, a jug of some kind, decorated with images of the nine worthies. Uh, as Does that of, survive? Uh, personal gift yeah this is something he has a real personal interest in sorry did that did that survive uh that's a great question i am not sure i know we've got the account that demonstrates she gifted it i'm not sure if it's it's still around or or we know where that where that's gone Ah, who knows? Maybe, maybe King Charles uses it for something in Windsor. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be lovely? His kind of, you know, his water jug in an yeah. evening. It's this, yeah, this absolutely glorious piece of, of decorative wear. Um, yeah, so the, they are reflected in literature. Their prominence goes right the way through to the Renaissance period. Um, they, uh, they feature in Tudor masks right the way through uh, up to Shakespeare. 
Um, he uh, he references it. I think it's in one of the Henry the Fourths. He references. Um, some bravery in fighting by Falstaff that he says he's 10 times better than the nine worthies, uh, which right. kind of indicates that, that they're still known, they're still talked about, they're, they're still seen as this and, and they don't need explaining in the text because Shakespeare's very good at explaining stuff. He says things twice quite a lot. Yeah, if, if everyone is expected yeah. to know who the nine worthies are, then yeah. there's no need to explain them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he compares him to, you know, Hector of Troy and, and he compares Falstaff to Agamemnon and, and he says, you know, he's as great as the nine worthies. Presumably then, if you didn't know who they were, you could infer who these guys were. But sure. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's used as a mask theme, um, not just in England. This, this goes across Europe as well. Okay. So, I mean, things have changed a little bit in terms of military leadership. And yeah. you wrote a book. Um, about uh, understanding conflict from Hastings to Helmand. So I haven't, I must confess, I have not actually read it. Right? <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, if, if I had to read every book written by every guest, I would yeah. literally spend my entire waking life reading books by guests, which mm. would be a great way to spend my life, but I have unfortunately other, <laughs> yeah. other responsibilities. So no, um, sure. can, you, can you just sort of summarize? I, I, I hate it when people do this to me, right? You've written this book. Okay, it took you like four years to do. Could you please just summarize it in the next 10 minutes? Sure, okay, no but, worries. But, but there we go. Okay, so, yeah. so yeah. please please summarize how it, things have changed. Yeah, no problem. So, um, yeah, I co-wrote the book uh, with Dr. Graham Callister at the uh, York St. John University, uh, who is a, he's a Napoleonic uh, scholar, French Revolutionary Napoleonic scholar. Um, and we did our doctorates together at York, and we both work on uh, military history. Me, me tangentially, I guess, with my background in, in dueling and tournaments, uh, Graham much more explicitly with foreign policy uh, during the Napoleonic uh, and Revolutionary Wars. And we were both teaching at the time. Uh, Graham, uh, obviously, undergraduates uh, at university and master's students uh, on the war course at, at St. John's um, and me, uh, A-level and IB students in sixth form. And we both really wanted a book that we could give our students that would cover some themes of battle over the last millennium. Uh, we didn't want just a history of battle, kind of, you know, a chapter right. on early medieval and then a chapter on 19th century. We, we wanted to address this thematically. So if students were interested or were writing about, say, leadership in battle, they had a place to go where they could read a chapter on some themes of leadership over a thousand years of history. Um, now that is a pr pretty big challenge. <laughs> that so is a big we challenge. Put some, yeah, we put some parameters in place for our own sanity, uh, and also just to, to mean that we could draw some kind of conclusion that that was right. in any way meaningful. So we focused on the European world. We focused, in fact, almost entirely on Europe. Uh, we we venture over to North America a little bit, but we focus as as much as. Uh, as much on Europe as, as anything. Um, we look at land battles 
uh, we would love to have done something on naval warfare and bring in aerial warfare, but but we focused That's on huge. land battles uh, because yeah, we 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 both work on land war in one guise or another. Um, so we wanted to work on that. Um, and we picked some themes that we thought would make really fascinating studies of battle specifically over the past millennium. So things like strategy and tactics, uh, the role of leadership, uh, the role of weapons, but also some things that we really wanted to unpick a little bit more. So we've got a chapter on society. You know, how does the society that soldiers come from impact the battlefield and the battle itself. Well, how, uh, it? how do how do non-combatants play a role in? in <laughs> okay, everyone is expecting me to go straight to the weapons. Sure. But what you just said about how the society impacts how so how does the society they come from impact the actual battle itself? Yeah. So I mean, it it really acts, I think, as a, a massive informer on the way that an army is organized, the way that an mm -hmm. army is recruited, the quality and experience of the soldiery. Uh, and then when you get into the battle itself, the fighting, it impacts things like what actions are allowed and prohibited by the soldiers. That's, that's um, why I was thinking it's like, yeah. in this society, you kill prisoners. In that society, you don't kill prisoners. Sure. That that sort of thing would change. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't imagine there's a huge amount of variation in Europe alone. But when European armies met, for example, Asian armies, there was yeah. all sorts of, hang on, they're not playing by the rules. Yeah. Well, in fact, they were. They were just playing by different rules. Yeah, absolutely. And and even within Europe, you know, there, there's uh, the Black Prince is, is a divisive enough figure within European contexts, you know, is is the the execution of, uh, of civilians acceptable? Is the execution of prisoners of war um, acceptable at Agincourt? Um, I think it was uh, Henry V was, was put on a sort of trial for war crimes at some point by a court in America in, in about 2000 because of the Helpful. execution of prisoners of war. Well, that will teach him a lesson. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, <laughs> on the wrist, you know. <laughs> He's been dead, dead for 500 years. And, yeah. and oh, yeah, we, yeah. We, well, we, we better... We better make sure that he, he learns his lesson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, How you know, frantically pointless. Yeah, we, we found all of these kind of, you know, interesting little nuggets where societies are reflected by the army that is recruited from them. Um, so the health of soldiers at the start of the 20th century um, was something that, you know, Graham in particular flagged up. The fact that when they were recruiting uh, for the Boer War and World War One, they were finding that so many men from working class backgrounds were malnourished uh, and right. were hugely underweight uh, and had horrific shortages uh, of, of really important things that they needed. Um, so that idea that, you know, the recruitment for war is, is a straightforward process of, okay, the army needs some men, it's going to issue some propaganda to make war look glorious, men sign up and they go off to war. You know, actually, the, the distinction between society and, and the armies that are recruited from them is, is much more nuanced and much more fascinating, I think. Um, 
And then, the, you know, the, just the value placed on things like medical support and access right. to water. Um, this is, you know, I mean, we were thinking particularly about the Crusades. And obviously there you've got a clash of societies and a clash of cultures. But you've also got... Uh, Frankish commanders making decisions to miss waterholes because ah. the final goal is more important than the welfare of people their surviving. Men. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you know that you've got all sorts of other distinctions that I think go beyond the the kind of basic ideas of different societies have have different values. Actually, within societies, there are a lot of different values reflected here. Okay. Now. My my listeners will not forgive me if I don't ask about the weapons. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the uh, the development of weapons obviously has has meant that war and battles are capable of killing more people more quickly. Um, but there are also real similarities in some of the challenges that weapons present armies. I mean, an army obviously cannot fight a battle if it doesn't have enough weapons to do it. And the logistical challenges of getting weapons to a battlefield ready to be used and mm. having men trained to use them are challenges that have not uh, decreased over the past right. thousand years. Um, you know, I mean, what, some of the great work by, by Anne Curry and others onto the archer's role uh, in the English campaigns of the Hundred Years' War, you know, it is this, you know, half hour permanent arrow fire, arrow shooting, volley fire. Is that likely? It, could that ever have happened? Well, it, if you've got an unlimited supply of arrows, sure. But given that they didn't have an unlimited supply of arrows, the role of arrows in that battle is going to be different. They're not shooting indiscriminately for half an hour. No. They're having to use them much more judiciously. So, you know, the idea that as, as weapons have developed in complexity, they've also gained more challenges in supply and logistical support. Sure, I mean, that is true. Uh, uh, you know, the, the tail a, for modern weapons is enormous, but there's yeah, always been a logistical tail. Um, one of the battles in the Boer War, yeah. no, not the Boer War, the, um, I think it was the, the first Zulu War, mm -hmm. the British Army had the wrong bullets for their guns. And so they all got slaughtered. Was that, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking it's Andalwana. Is that the, was that the battle? It could well be a Andalwana. Yes. Um, and, and yeah. Like just, just like send them the right fucking bullets yeah. and they can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and then you get, you know, a, a, just a little while later, you've got um, the Russian army turning up on the front in World War One uh, without any guns. And their commanding officers Helpful. are saying, you know, don't worry, in a couple of hours, some guys will die and you can use that. Uh, and and you know, that's that's not a great approach to, to weaponizing your army. Um, so, yeah, the, these problems are, are kind of age old, I think, yeah, in and, terms of and we think the of weapons to your men. Yeah, we, we think of like archers as carrying a quiver full of arrows. Yeah. But I mean, I, that arrows were delivered to the English army at Agincourt in barrels. Yeah. And yeah. a barrel will hold an awful lot of arrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, but, you know, there's also 
there's also considerations of okay transporting those arrows down sure. you know when the english keep doing these these campaigns and chevauches uh, they they don't hold the territory behind them so any supply line right. has to try and negotiate enemy actors to, to get to the English yeah. army. Um, and then you've got, you know, the manufacture of these things uh, as, as a raw product um, takes time and it takes resources and it takes expertise um, before you've you've tried to get them to the army. Right. So the logistical tail has always been there. I think it's just in, yeah. in much more modern warfare, that logistical tail is far longer and, and you know far more people have to have a very high level of technical expertise as well. Right, yeah, I'm thinking of American production during the Second World War. I mean, mm. they were they were producing planes at an astonishing rate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was that as much as anything else, I think, that probably tipped the war in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the country that can make more weapons but then get those weapons to where they're needed and then use them effectively is normally going to be the army that wins, but there are a lot of pieces to match up in that line, right? <laughs> and true. when it works, it, it is decisive, but it doesn't work. It doesn't always work, yeah. Exactly. Fair. Okay. Um, now, I do have to ask, uh, if we can just go back a few hundred years. Sure. Um, what did the seven Frenchmen do with the seven Englishmen in 1402? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, uh, oh gosh. So, 1402, uh, there is a... Uh, a kind of miniature melee formal combat. Um, formal combat, by the way, is, is um, my solution to the terminological problem of what do we call... Tournaments, people? jousts and duels. Tournaments, yeah. jousts and duels, absolutely. Formal so, combat. Cool. Yeah, this is a formal combat. This is uh, two teams, seven men on each team, fighting on foot simultaneously. So this isn't okay. one versus one. This is, at the same time, seven versus seven. Um, the French men were the uh, the challengers. They'd sent a challenge to the English in 1398, early 1399, uh, to fight in an encounter at Outrance. So this is going to be a violent one. This is going to be, you know, we're, we're trying to hurt one another here. Yeah. Um, Stuff happens in England, uh, let's put it that way, 1399, you've got the usurpation of, of Henry Bolingbroke, uh, becomes Henry IV. Uh, the English have bigger things to worry about for a couple of years. But finally, they managed to arrange this combat in uh, May 1402, near Bordeaux at Montendre, uh, between these two teams, these two groups. Um, the two sets of men represented uh, two households. Uh, so the seven French participants were all from the Duke of Orleans household. Um, and the English participants uh, were all from uh, the Earl of Rutland, Edward Plantagenet's household. So he's the grandson of, of Edward III. Um, and he was the royal lieutenant in Aquitaine. So he's a, a kind of you know local power. They're members of his household who are, who are going to fight this fight. Um, they turn up. The Frenchmen spend uh, spend a long time apparently mouthing off against the English. Uh, <laughs> of course, they do. The, the main narratives for this are are French, um, and in particular, there's a, a narrative by Christine de Pizan. Uh, she writes how. 
the French were to defend the honour of France. They were to fight the the dishonourable, slovenly English. Uh, a different writer says that the English spent the night before the combat getting pissed, whereas the French did. were in prayer. You know, you've got this real, yeah, yeah, yeah. This real sort of um, almost uh, propagandising uh, presentation of these two. Yeah, the so, honest, to be fair, if I was going to fight to the death the next day, I would <laughs> much rather spend the night drinking and whoring than yeah. praying. Honestly, yeah, I, I guess you've just got to hit that sweet spot where the hangover hasn't hit by the time yeah. the fighting happens. Right, right. Be, be a little bit drunk still. Yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit of a little bit of extra courage will go a long way. I think. Absolutely. Um, so uh, they they turn up. There's all sorts of. Uh, political background to this of, of why it's happening um so the the duke of orleans the the uh all of the the french participants were in his household um he has uh been uh, in conflict with the burgundians the duke of burgundy uh, and his followers he sees the Duke of Burgundy uh, and England as being a little bit cosy. He's worried about that relationship. He describes the peace treaty uh, in 1389 signed between England and, and France as a Burgundian peace. Um, he also feels a bit isolated. He uh, is very worried about um, England returning Richard II's wife, Isabella of Valois to France. Uh, he's he's been mouthing off about the fact the English have deposed Richard II, but won't return his wife to the French. Uh, since you know 1399, he organises jousts in York in 1400, sends a couple of his men to fight those um, under the sort of pretext of checking on Isabella of Valois and and seeing what's happening to her. So the Duke of Orleans is is the kind of um, chief anglophobe uh, in France at this point and he right. organizes this duel to, to express some of those concerns and those those frustrations um, so the 14 guys meet up uh, most of them are knights uh, or um, kind of household esquires there is one particularly surprising participant uh, and this guy is identified just as Champagne in the narrative accounts of the event. Um, now Jean-Bernard Vevre has identified him as probably Guillaume de la Champagne who was a chamberlain of the Duke of Orléans uh, and he is a wrestler. Oh uh, he is, he's never been to war before, he was not a noble he has to get special permission uh, to participate from the Duke of Orléans because he has no experience of fighting. He, you know, knights, he has no nobility, but he's a great wrestler. Which is uh, what you want in armour. Yeah, he's he's prob probably uh, there because accounts of the combat suggest his role was to wrestle the Englishman to the ground while his teammates come up and stab at them. Excellent. So this yeah. is a really violent, physical, grisly affair. You know, this is wrapped up and in they, the blessings of nicety, but it's not. And the nice. French yeah, the French put a ringer in there. Right? That because mm. that is not that is not normal to have 
a non-Nike person who just happens to be a superb wrestler, yeah. slap some armor on him, send him in just for the take. I mean, that is that is gamesmanship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we can tell that this is unusual because they have to get special permission to use him. Right. Um, so this is, yeah, this is forethought and careful planning by the French. They are going into this to fight, uh, not fight dirty because it's it's allowed. It's they get permission yeah. for it. But, you know, they're, they're fighting with real intent to, to inflict some damage here. Um, and in fact, they do. One of the Englishmen, uh, Richard Scales, is killed, uh, and the the fight is stopped at that point because someone has has died. Um, so this was a pretty grisly, pretty violent affair. Um, but this is not the only time that this group of Frenchmen get together to go and, and fight as a little team. So 1405, 1406, the same French team um, prepare to undertake a a similar encounter against champions from the House of Burgundy. So there is a suggestion, although it's really limited, that this was a, a professional outfit. These were men right. who trained and were prepared and strategized to fight and together honestly, in these events. Yeah. And in any any kind of team against team, yeah. it's the teamwork that wins. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that the English knights probably didn't spend a lot of time working on their teamwork. I'm guessing they, yeah, they maybe spent a little bit too much time in the pub rather than strategizing <laughs> as a as a group. Um, you know, I mean, they were they were from the the Earl of Rutland's household. They did know each other. They sure. had fought alongside each other, but not as a group, not as an organized team. And it's um, interesting that sorry, it's interesting that yeah. the combat was stopped yeah. the moment somebody died. Yeah, yeah. As Even opposed to as opposed to you know last last, yeah. last people standing win. Yeah. It was like, yeah. okay, one person's died, that's it, we stop. Yeah, yeah. It's quite civilized. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it really? is, uh, they, they, they obviously had um, officers and an overseer of the field. There has been mm -hmm. some suggestion that that was the Earl of Rutland um, as lieutenant in Aquitaine, as a local authority. There's been some suggestion he was the overseer for this encounter. Um, so they had someone not fighting, giving the rules, giving the orders, right. making an intervention. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the death of one opponent was enough of a bit of a, okay, we need to stop this now before the Earl of Rutland loses seven of his household uh, to what was clearly a really organized group of, of Frenchmen. Um, okay. And they, they, you know, they saw themselves as a group. They, they wore a little badge of a, a diamond from when they issued the challenge to when the challenge was met, sort of as a little team wow. logo, you know, a, a promise to one another and to God and to their country that they were going to fulfill this challenge. Um, and they, yeah, they, they were very organized. They were very prepared. And, and they, yeah, massively whooped the English. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, then like 13 years later, Agincourt, yeah. so we're all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, again, I'm guessing that quite a lot of the listeners have no idea. This. And you can probably tell from the list of questions that I went through your CV and I did a little bit of research and I thought, oh, my God, that's interesting. So sure. what is the Garter King of Arms? Okay, um, so the Garter King of Arms uh, was created. I mean, it, you know, this is still a thing. This is still around, yeah. um, but it was created um, 
around 1415, uh, either just before or just after the Agincourt campaign by Henry V. And the Garter King of Arms uh, was created really as the King of Arms for the Order of the Garter. So this is So what is a King of Arms? A King of Arms is a chief herald. So they take responsibility for for kind of three main things. Um, So the first thing that they take responsibility for from from their creation um, is serving in a ceremonial and a practical sense, a chivalric order. So obviously the Garter King of Arms looks after the order of the Garter. Uh, so right. he oversees the ceremonial. He's there on meetings of the garter. He carries the insignia of the garter. He oversees some of the jousting for the order of the garter. Um, but he's not a knight himself, is he? No, he's not a knight. He uh, he generally has a, a gentry background. Uh, he's not knighted, uh, but he has uh, he has a crown. He's a king of arms, so he wears a, a little king of arms crown, and he is in charge of these ceremonial events. Okay. Um, he's also in charge of the practicalities behind these events. So he carries messages on behalf of the Order of the Garter. He, uh, when men are promoted to the Order of the Garter, he's the one who delivers their robes to to reflect their new position. So he's got kind of dual role. Um, and these dual roles still exist in the heralds and kings of arms that England has today. So uh, at the uh, the funeral of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth and the coronation, obviously, of King Charles, um, the heralds and the kings of arms were very much in evidence. They were part right. of the processions. They were stood uh, around near the catafalque when the queen passed away. They were stood at the front in the coronation ceremony. They still play this kind of dual role of ceremonial official, but then practical uh, and in Scotland's heraldic tradition, legal authority. So they look after grants of coats of arms. In Scotland, um, they're known as the the court of the Lord Lion, and they actually have a, a legal ability to enforce the use of coats of arms. So, you know, if you get a random company giving itself a coat of arms, in Scotland, the court of the Lord Lion will go and say, actually, that that you're not allowed to do that. There's a process by which <laughs> coats of arms are given out. Um, in England, they design coats of arms and, and grant them when arms are, are granted to people. So um, they have this kind of dual role, practical and, and ceremonial. Um now, Henry V, when he creates Garter King of Arms, he has a couple of other things that he has in mind for, for Garter as well. Um, the first one uh, is that he's created as the principal herald in England. So he is the boss uh, of this group of men uh, and now women responsible for giving coats of arms, organising ceremonial uh, or the kind of practical admin uh, of coats of arms in England. And he's created as a bit of a recorder for the Order of the Garter. So he's expected to make a record of their meetings, a record of their membership, uh, and kind of keep those up to date and, and is passed on. So when one Garter King of Arms retires, that information is passed to his successor, uh, who then updates it. Right. So, so, yeah. So, what did they do for seventy years in the in the Order of the Garter before they had a King of Arms? Yeah. So, this is a really interesting thing, right? So, it, it, 
it has been seen in the past, I think, that Henry V, probably because of, you know, the whole Agincourt thing, seen as a big deal. He he does a lot for chivalry in England, right? He's right. seen as almost reinventing the Order of the Garter. He creates Garter King of Arms. He's seen as organizing and officializing it uh, significantly. Actually, he, he gives a name to something that has existed for a while. So all of those duties that I've just described of Garter King Somebody had to do them. Had been done before, right? So sure. the principal herald in England had been Chandos Herald from the 1370s. So he had, had been the, the head of this group. Other record keeping had happened for the Order of the Garter. You know, that's why we, we know a bit about what it's doing from its creation in, in 1348. Um they draw a, a list of the coats of arms of knight members uh, known as Willamot's Roll uh, from the mid-1390s, um, which gives a kind of pictorial representation of the founding members of the Order of the Garter going from Edward III uh, in precedence through the dukes and earls, the barons and the knights who are members. So this record-keeping had also happened. It just hadn't been given to one guy with a special name who's told it is your job to do this. Ah, okay. Uh, so that's what Henry V does that, that is a bit unusual. But yeah, the, the basic functions had been around for a while. Now, you're clearly mad about medieval combat. So I do have to ask, do you actually train any medieval combat? No, I did some, uh, I did some fencing. Uh, when I okay. was at school. Because I can uh, see there's a helmet on your shelf yeah. behind you. Yeah. And yeah, it looks like right. it's been used. Yeah, that it looks like it's because I have I have deliberately left it alone. I, I it came to me. It's it's a reproduction. It's super shiny. Yes. Uh, it it looked too shiny. Uh, I was, I mean I know you know knights took bloody good care of their armor. It would have been in really good condition, particularly tournament armor, because that was the big showy armor. Yeah. Um, but when I had it sitting on my desk, my students would would kind of see it and they'd think, ah, that's, that's, you know, it's too modern. So I kind of left it to get this lovely kind of Patina. rusty patina on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is this is Boussico, uh, named after the, the nickname of Jean Le Maigre, who was a yeah. uh, French knight. Uh, Marshal of France. Yeah, absolutely. Whose uh, who son was also Marshal of France and who was defeated by Galeasa de Mantua, Fiore's student. Yeah. Very important for us Fioris yeah. to mention that yeah. every time Boussico's name comes up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and Boussico has, you know, he has a little link to, to my local area. So he's uh, captured at Agincourt. He's right. brought back to Yorkshire. He's imprisoned in Richmond Castle uh, and he uh, he dies here. So yeah. he's he's got a history in the north of England. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I am fascinated by this stuff. I, I've done a little bit about it before um i've done some some riding very poorly uh i've done some fencing even more poorly um but i i like i like reading about the guys who were who were doing this 600 700 years ago and and what their mentality was and what their background was and and why they were doing this you know were were they putting their lives on the line because because even a, a pleasant joust a joust that was friendly training joust can kill you um yeah absolutely um Mind you, so so can like going i don't yeah. know cross-country hacking on a horse <laughs> yeah people yeah, fall off absolutely. horses all the time yeah i mean it's 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 a scale of risk right yeah. um but why why did these guys put themselves at, at such huge risk um was it the the fame was it the money was it the the social prestige um was it 
the honour, you know, something much more intrinsic and inherent to them? Was it uh, that they saw it as some kind of Christian duty? Was there a religious aspect to this? Was it so that they could um, get a nice castle and, and retire with some money rather than going to war? Or was it to practice for war? You know, what's the relationship there? All so, of the above, I would just, imagine. Yeah, absolutely. All of the above, all at the same time. Uh, and sometimes all the same guy. Um, but, so. but, you know... I, I I think I think that we should train you up to the point where you could comfortably, if if the occasion demanded it, cut yeah. a dog in half. <laughs> I would. Right. I would. Uh, I I I don't think I'd be able to do that emotionally. No 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 no. You wouldn't. You wouldn't actually have to cut a dog in half. But like. But so you would have an idea of. Okay. So so your cutting yeah. skills are sufficient that that if you had if you were in a position where cutting a dog in half was a reasonable thing to do, yeah. you would you would just. Yeah, you'd have the technical skills to do it. I think yeah. that is a reasonably accomplishable goal in a reasonably short time frame. Yeah, well, I would. I would absolutely love that. I, I really would. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, see me after class, and we'll sort you out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay. Um, now you do have a book coming out, and it's yeah. like the the sacred duty of every podcast host to invite <laughs> the guests to talk about their forthcoming book. So um, the floor is yours. Dual single combat in medieval England. Um, What's it about? Yeah, so, I mean, it's basically about a lot of our, our chat today, right? Um, right? It tries to look at dueling. Um, mm -hmm. Again, the first challenge I've got is what was a duel? Because uh, medieval writers use the word for a whole host of events. So right. I started from the point of, okay, well, when they said duel, what did they mean? Uh, did they mean the same thing? So... Um, these are events, uh, I've narrowed them down, so there are two combatants fighting one another, there are a series of agreed rules, those rules can be incredibly vague, um, you know, it, it can just be both agreeing how it's going to end or both agreeing that no one else will interfere, or they can be incredibly prescriptive. You know, by the time we get to the, the late 14th, 15th century, we've got very, very prescriptive rules on dueling in England uh, that they're trying to follow. So I have a look at, you know, how much did they follow those? Um, and they're fighting about something. So I have a, an exploration of, okay, what are they fighting duels about? Obviously, you've got the, the legal side of things. Have a, a bit of an explore of that. But what else are they fighting these events about? Um, so looking into the, the motivations a little bit as well. Um, and I talk about duels before battle. I talk about judicial duels. Uh, I talk about accusations of treason and cowardice and why they're fighting duels for that. Uh, and then I go right the way up to the massive court spectacle duels uh, that are pulling thousands of people to come and watch them that take years to organise, that cost an absolute fortune uh, and that are written about by everyone who's kind of writing what's going on at the time, you know, the chroniclers, the diarists, the letter writers, um, the tracing, the, the echoes of these things through the royal accounts, through private letters that are being written. Um, so really, I'm, I'm kind of trying to explore the whole history of these events uh, in medieval England. I'm focusing in on England because things are very different in other countries. And I wanted to look at how is this stuff being done just in England? Uh, well, so I mean, the first rule of writing a book the first rule is is narrow your focus to the point where you have something that could be covered 
in the s- scope of a single book. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely. like the first rule. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know what? I, I even then we are we are glossing over some areas between uh, more or less the Norman Conquest. I, I do go back a little bit to look at the the tradition of dueling. What's happening in England pre-conquest? What's happening on the continent pre-conquest? How the duel then gets brought over to to England as a judicial duel, it's, it's brought over by the Normans uh, and how it's then integrated into the English legal system. Um, and I go right the way up to the early Tudor period. So, you know, what, wow. what is happening in the Wars of the Roses? <laughs> Are they still doing these things? What, what's Henry VI doing with these things? How does it change in the, the very late 15th and just into the early 16th century? Um and then, you know, I, I kind of leave it open-ended because I well, think you there's a amount of the Tudors that goes on with this stuff. So, or, or there aren't enough trees in the world to print a book big enough. No, and my poor editor, I mean, bless her. She's, yeah. she, she's already kind of, you know, got, got a draft that was meant to be, I think, 80,000 words. And it's, it's a little bit longer than that now. So, it would have uh, to be. yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think I'd be... I'd be hanged, drawn and quartered if I try to present uh, 160,000 words, which might just about do some of this justice. But um, yeah, okay. there's so much and, and so much of it is a fascinating story. So tell me, uh, how far along in the book production are you? So I have finished the first manuscript. Uh, wow. Is, uh, Major it, milestone. Yep. It's now, uh, it's winging its way over to uh, my editor at, at Pen and Sword Books. Um, it is hopefully coming out in 2024. I uh, haven't got a release date for it quite yet, but I'm, okay. I'm suspecting it'll be end of summer 2024. Okay. As soon as you have a release date, and an ability to pre-order, you send it to me and I'll send it to the listeners and <laughs> cool. they will rush They will rush off and buy it. Because no, if I know much. my people at all, they that's the book that they want to read. No, thanks very um, much. I, I really hope it is. Uh, it, I mean, the, this stuff kind of writes itself in terms of entertaining uh, right. quality, right? I mean, you, you can't write about these events without, I think making them exciting because they were and and you echo the voices of the chroniclers and you echo the voices of the participants who were themselves excited fascinated awed by some of these spectacles um and so i hope it's it's you know for anyone interested in medieval history i hope it it captures a little bit of that excitement and that spectacle uh, and that awe just a tiny fraction would be good (laughs) well I, i i wouldn't be surprised if you get there because um, <laughs> I, I shall certainly be picking up a copy, oh, um, and, I, and I might, I might even get around to reading your first book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, eventually, just the medieval bits, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I see. I have, I have quite a broad interest. I mean, yeah, I, no, yeah, absolutely. My weapons interests yeah. go back to sword and buck in the 14th century, all the way up yeah. to small sword in the 18th. Yeah, I start, I start to lose interest when swords stopped being carried. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so. There's a couple of questions that I ask all my guests, slightly yeah. modified because you're not a historical swordsmanship practitioner. Yeah. Um, but first one is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Oh, so this is going to be, uh, you know, when duel is is put to bed and, and yeah. you know, it's, it's safely with the editor. Um, I really am excited to write a book on the Battle of Mighton. 
September okay. 1319. Not a battle that many people have, have heard of because it's... No, it's, I haven't. It's just not a well-known battle. It, it's not a major battle. Um, it's not in itself uh, a massive, you know, turning point, a nation-changing turning point. Um, but it is fascinating and it is important in what's happening between England and Scotland uh, at the start of the 14th okay. century. So um, Battle of Mighton, September 1319, um, it is a battle between some raiders from Scotland. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, to, to call them raiders makes it sound a bit kind of hit and miss. They were organised, they were skilled and they were very experienced soldiers who invaded uh, England and raided into Yorkshire as a distraction while the English were besieging Berwick. Right, so they're doing uh, this okay. to try and pull some of the army away from Berwick, distract uh, Edward's attention and, and try and keep, keep that split. So they come down to York probably because they have heard a rumour that Queen Isabella is in York. Uh, and she was at this period. She'd come with the army up to York. The rest of the army had gone up to Berwick. She'd stayed in the city. Uh, and this group of Scotsmen are probably trying to get to York to attempt a kidnap of the Queen, which would be wow. a pretty game-changing thing uh, in Anglo-Scottish relations. Um, they That's don't chess. manage it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, they, they don't manage it. Isabella escapes. This group of Scotsmen are kind of left in the middle of Yorkshire. They obviously do some, some ransacking, some pillaging. Uh, the, the English army is debating whether to leave Berwick to come and answer this or not. Uh, the southerners in the army want to continue the siege of Berwick. The northerners are really worried that their land is next from this marauding yeah. group of Scots. So they want to, to leave Berwick and come and save their land. And meanwhile, this group of Scotsmen is is ransacking the countryside to the, the north and the west of York. Um, and then they look like they're kind of turning around and gradually heading back home when the Archbishop of York, uh, William Melton, and York's mayor, Nicholas Fleming, lead an army of probably a few thousand citizens and clergy of York. Wow. This is, a, this is an army made up of regular York folk. Uh, you know, you've got your butchers, your craftspeople. They've grabbed weapons, whatever they can find. They are led by their, their mayor. Because all the soldiers are up at Berwick. Yeah, all the soldiers are up at Berwick. So York has very, very few garrisoned soldiers left. Uh, they are joined by the Archbishop of York and a significant number of clerics and monks from York's monasteries. York was a, a big monastic city. It's got several monasteries and religious houses. They send a significant number of, of clerics with the army up to uh, the crossing of the River Ur at Mighton, where they come across the Scots and they fight a battle which is, uh, I mean, it's not a you know, a David and Goliath story, this one, the English are massacred by a, an, a properly armed with some experienced group of Scots, right? I'm not, I'm not sure why I'm laughing because that isn't funny. But, but okay, basically a bunch of people without 
armor without military training without the proper yeah. weapons they yeah. go charging off and yeah. they meet a basically a bunch of professional soldiers and they get slaughtered yeah <laughs> i was yeah. hoping you were going to say they, yeah. they drove those perfidious no, scots to rout but no, no they, there's, they there's no hollywood ending here no there's, there's, up to that point i was thinking this would make a brilliant film yeah but, um, but no yeah. i mean you can't make a film out of that the wrong I mean, people won you know it's it's a hill it's a a horrific but glorious end to this attempt of the people of York to um, I mean they're, they're not even defending the city at this point right the Scots have left York they right. are seemingly heading northward um, but the people of York are probably I think a combination of getting some comeuppance because these Scotsmen have, have pillaged ransacked a lot of land near the city they are also, I think, trying to prevent the need of the English army to abandon Berwick. You know, they're right. doing this to, to either buy time for someone to get to them from Berwick or prevent the need for anyone to leave the siege of Berwick, which is clearly a, a bigger priority, certainly for, for Edward and the southern nobles. Um, and yeah, they, uh, they get slaughtered and they get slaughtered in a pretty, uh, pretty, straightforward strategic battle they cross a bridge they're then cut off behind them so they can't retreat over the bridge um the scots destroy the bridge so no one is escaping um and they are slaughtered uh, it's known as the white battle because so many uh monks and clerics in in their white robes are killed um, and the, you know, a lot try and escape back over the river. The bridge is gone, so they're trying to wade or swim. River is, is decently deep at this point, um, so a lot of them drown. And robes and armour are not good for swimming in. No, absolutely not. Uh, no, get very, very waterlogged. Um, so, yeah, this is, it's not a great moment for the people of York or the people of, of Northern England. Um but what really fascinates me about this, number one, is what is making William Melton Archbishop of York, who, who wasn't a kind of ivory tower archbishop. You know, this is a guy who has seen a bit of the world. He has seen a, a little bit of, of military campaigning before. Um, he's with the, the Archbishop of Ely, who himself has, has seen combat in Ireland. Um, these are not you know, guys who've never left Innocence, their monastery yeah. charging idealistically off at some Scot some experienced Scotsman. So given that, and given I'm I'm presuming they're not idiots, like what makes them do this? What what are yeah. they doing it for? Why are they chasing the Scots? And and why do they meet them in battle? Um and then, you know, that the stories of the people who join in the fighting from York, you know, that the Lord Mayor Nicholas Fleming is killed. Uh, Melton, the Archbishop, escapes. Um, Nicholas Fleming is killed. We've got documents um, kind of from her widow asking for, for money because the income from the family has disappeared. Um, so, you know, what's making him go and fight this battle? Because it, it certainly yeah. appears certainly from Fleming, the mayor's view, he's he's in the fighting. You know, he's not standing on a little hill at a distance commanding things. He's in the fighting. What made them think they stood a chance and what are they trying to achieve? Um, and then what, you know, what role does this play in 
Anglo-Scottish relations at the time. I mean, I, I you know, I, I prefaced it kind of shooting, shooting myself in my foot by saying this wasn't a nation changing battle as, as, you know, so many famous ones tend to be. But this was an event that, that influences policy. Um, Edward's army eventually does split apart at Berwick. The northern, um, northern nobles led by Lancaster, um, leave Berwick and try and, and hunt down this group of Scotsmen who who ransacked the north. The siege then eventually has to be abandoned because Edward can't keep the siege going with the, the force that is left. It feeds into the, these kind of movements and complaints about Edward as a king and about his military leadership. Um, but it's not really been studied in any depth. You know, it's it's always okay. a, a paragraph or two in histories of Anglo-Scottish border relations. But there's more to this story, I think, that, that just needs to be told. Am I right in thinking that you're going to write the book to find out the answers? You don't have the answers and are now going to write them yeah. up in a book? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be kind of learning this one as I write. Um, we are fortunate for this one in that we've got quite a lot of, of primary documentation. We've got the archbishop's registers. We've got um, quite a lot of financial documentation for the campaign. Um, but also I want to get, you know, the Scottish side of things, um, go up to Edinburgh, have a look at their archives, have a look at what the uh, what the Scots orders were. James Douglas, Thomas, uh, Earl of Moray were, were the leaders. What are they trying to do? Is there any evidence there? trying a sort of um, tactical assault to kidnap the Queen? What did they hope to achieve? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to exploring this. It, it's going to be, I think, a, a year or two's project to really... <laughs> at, least. Uh, at least. At um, least. But I'm, I'm really excited about it. So that's, that's the big thing that I haven't acted on yet. But, you know, watch this space. I'm looking forward to exploring it. And, and as, soon, as soon as you have acted on it, you'll come back on the show and tell us all about it, right? Yeah, no problem <laughs> at all. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So my last question. Yeah. Um, somebody gives you a million dollars or gold coins in an oak chest or whatever to yeah. spend improving the understanding of history worldwide. Oh. How would you spend the money? God, you know, this one is a is a really tricky one because, I mean, first of all, it's it's the word understanding, right? Understanding and, and knowing uh, a very different things. And I think if we want to really understand history, so we want to, you know, we want to get in the minds of the people who were there. We want to try and work out motivations, thoughts, details. We have to go back and look at the record they've left us. Right. I, right. I, when I was a teacher, I, the one question my students got absolutely sick to death of hearing me spout on about is, how do we know Right. Like how do we know this was the case? How do we know that it was like this? And the answer to that almost always is because we've been left clues. Uh, never an easy answer. Right? There's never an easy answer to, to what happened in the past. Um, that's why historians all still have jobs. This, this is <laughs> hard. It, it, it's, you know, there are different answers depending on what information you look at. So for me, the biggest thing about understanding history is getting back to the documents. Um, and this is a roundabout way of saying, I think that the study and the understanding of history is changed hugely by the opening of documentation. The ah, opening of archives. Yes. The, the access. Scan it, put it online. Absolutely. The, the, the access to this information. And I mean, I finished my, I finished my doctorate nearly a decade ago. 
And um, at that time, it was just starting to open up online. But really, if you wanted to do a, a doctorate using these primary resources, um, using the, the roles, using the, the chivalry books, the Herald's books, all of that, you had to go to London and you had to stay in London for a while. And you probably also wanted to go to Kew and you probably wanted to go to regional archives. And, you know, the cost added it's up. It's, it's huge. Uh, and it prevents a lot of people from being able to do it. And I think it dissuades a lot of people from, from thinking they can access that information and do that right. study. So I would spend my money on digitizing uh, and making accessible as much primary information as I can, because I think that gets more people involved. It gets more people theorizing and exploring and seeking to understand history. And I think you get people from different backgrounds exploring history in a different way. And I think that is probably the, the best way to open up this discipline that, that we love right. to many more people in a, a more financially uh, achievable way. I could not agree more. And it's, you know, there's a lot of gatekeeping goes on us. So who yeah. gets to go and see the originals? Yeah. Like, yeah. okay. I mean, one of the reasons I thought a PhD would be a useful thing to have was it opens certain doors in certain institutions that might yeah. actually let me actually see the manuscripts I want to look at. Yeah. For instance. Um, and yeah, not everyone has the, the necessary support structures that enable yeah. them to go and get a PhD and thus get this access but if everything is digitized and stuck online yeah. at the very least you can you can make sure that if you are going to go and look at the originals it's going to be worth your time yeah yeah right yeah, so you know exactly what to go and look for exactly what questions to ask when you get there like okay this particular manuscript or whatever um if you could just read it from the scan then fine but if there's any kind of ambiguity about when it might be written or whatever yeah. then you need to yeah. really have a look at the original there's yeah. no substitute for looking at the original but yeah. then you know exactly what what to spend your time on yeah. it just yeah. saves so much time yeah absolutely i mean of, of course in an ideal world you know i would use my million pounds to to just pay for everyone's travel to london whenever they wanted or whatever <laughs> no. archive whenever they wanted italy or america or whatever but that's but, not enough money that's not enough money and there will never be enough money for that and 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 also, not, also not everyone has the leisure exactly. to go and spend two weeks yeah. in i mean you yeah, might have exactly. small children at home so you yeah. can't go anywhere or you yeah. might have a sick relative you're looking after but you yeah, still want or, to do your research yeah. but if you can just pull it up off the internet it's why yeah. um the wixen hour project is so mm. fabulous you must have heard of it right yeah like, because yeah. I remember in the 90s, we were working off really dodgy fifth generation or 10th generation photocopies of things. Yeah. And you could barely make out what was what the text was and you could barely make out what the images were. And it was awful. Yeah. I mean, it was great because that's we had not seen these things before. And a fifth generation photocopy is an awful lot better than nothing at all. Yeah. But these days you can download like 800 DPI scans of manuscripts and like you can see where an ink line has been scraped away and yeah. the lines sort of replaced so that the swords are one side or the other yeah of each other like yeah. it's yeah 
Like, oh my God, the children today, they don't know they're born. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Some I, of them complain yeah. that it's difficult. It's like, <laughs> no, fucking hell, you can actually read the damn thing. Yeah, I, I know, right? And and the, that revolution is, is underway now. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, understandably, it's slow. I mean, people have sure. to scan this stuff by hand. That takes weeks. Time years. and money. Uh, time and money. Um, and... Uh, you know, as you're absolutely right. There is no substitute for, for looking at the original. But for most people, A, the original might not be needed for their purposes. Right. You know, I don't need it for mine, usually. Yep, they, they can use a scan just as well. Um, and B, as you say, you then know what you need the original for. Rather than two weeks transcribing a document, you can spend a day looking at the document and transcribe it before you even get there. So you can right. chase up a few things. You can look at the material it's it's written on. You can look at the handwriting. You can check that there aren't, you know, beautiful, fascinating things that have been erased on the backside. You know, or even, whatever you even want just to the do. collation. Exactly, right? yeah. Which tells you whether pages may be missing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is what I love, by the way. Have you heard of Hema Bookshelf? Yes, yes, I have. Right. Yeah, Michael Chillis' yeah. project. He reproduces the collation of the... So his facsimiles are hand-stitched in the same choir structure yeah. as the originals. That is like, that is next-level fabulous. Yeah, no, I've, I've got one just on my shelf up there. Have you? Uh, Which one? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. Hang on, I'll grab it. Oh, yeah, here it is. It's uh, Ophiora. There we go. Oh, no, that's mine. Oh, that's is that yours? His. Oh, there we go. That's, okay, that, that, oh, well done. Um, okay, that, that facsimile yeah. is, um, that's my facsimile of the Getty manuscript, which yeah. is cheap. Yes. Um, it is actually cheaper than taking the scans to your local copy shop and yeah. having it printed and stuck in a, in a plastic comb binder. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, and it's, yeah, it's, 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 you can throw it in a fencing bag and not worry about it. Yeah. Michael's, let me grab. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure I've, I've got one somewhere because I... Because, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm super pleased you've got, you've got something yeah. I've produced in your house. Yeah. That's really nice. Um, but yeah, there we so, go. So, so the one, the one you just showed me, my one, yeah. it's just modern, modern production. It's a glued spine, so it's cheap to produce. So again, if you do trash it, you can yeah. just buy another one and there's no big deal. This one, this yeah. hand-stitched, hand-bound, glorious thing of gorgeousness, um, this is the one with the collation that is, that is yeah. accurate. Um, it's actually too accurate because you very, very annoyingly, it has obviously had a page bound in in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, yeah. which is a, a, a section from the dagger is bound in between polax and spear and it belongs in the dagger section. And it's obviously a late binding error or a late yeah. rebinding error. Yeah. And he's, he's gone and left it in its, the place where it is in the current manuscript order rather than correcting it, which is the one, one thing I disagreed with Michael on in the production of this yeah. particular yeah. manuscript, which, yes, I have spent the last 25 years sort of... <laughs> <laughs> waiting for a facsimile of this quality yeah um, yeah okay so do so you do have one of these yeah yeah i do Good. yeah yeah <sighs> fantastic yeah and and you know there's there's yeah there's a a real place for people using the original but actually that that book your book the the versions of this the scans online they can it's reach enough a for most people most of the time a lot quicker and a, a lot yeah. more cheaply often so yeah yeah and and yeah, it just 
it, it also it protects the manuscripts from the unnecessary handling. Yeah. Yeah. So if you yeah. need to see it, absolutely fine. But if you've got the scans, yeah. I mean, I have never actually handled any of the original Fiore manuscripts, right? Yeah. And I have spent like the last 25 years studying Fiore and, you know, I've written like five or six books on the man and yeah. his works. And, you know, because I just, I just don't need, I don't need it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would love to do it, but, you know, I'm not a tourist. Yeah. <laughs> and, sure. and showing up yeah if I don't actually have a research question that only handling the original can answer yeah. yeah if somebody offered me the opportunity to pick up one of these things I wouldn't say no sure but I'm not going to subject the manuscript to additional handling yeah unless there's a research question that I can only answer that way yeah sure yeah because um, you know yeah. these things don't last forever no <laughs> no no and I think you know that the, the the more that we can encourage people to to use these documents, facilitate the use of these documents, the, the better history comes out of it. You know, his, right. history is debate. History is not finding an absolute answer. It's it's debate. And in order for debate to happen, more than one person has to have access to the information from which you draw your conclusions. Absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that's that would be what I spent my million on if if I had it. I would I would <laughs> I would gladly give it to you if I had it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Really. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. It's been lovely to meet you. No, it's been really lovely to meet you, Guy, and thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rachel. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. As always, I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them, I would have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next time when I'll be talking to Dr. Przemysław Grabowski-Gorniak, who is Assistant Professor at the Institute of English Studies at the University of Warsaw. His research focuses on the chivalric tradition of the late Middle Ages, so chivalric romances and medieval manuscripts and treatises on the arts of war, and he has a special focus on the English literary portrayals of Sir Gawain in the period of the Hundred Years' War and the Wars of the Roses. Yes, we get very geeky about medieval stuff. His admiration for the Middle Ages goes beyond academia, as he is also a historical reenactor and a harness factor instructor, combining his knowledge of the period, as well as his experience in working with medieval manuscripts, with practical approach in order to reconstruct martial techniques of the 14th and 15th centuries. And when you hear about his, his armoured combat training programme, you will realise that you are not nearly fit enough to fight him, ever. So, you definitely don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Most importantly, of course, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and I will see you soon.